Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Leader say, two years old and making a difference. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Chris, good morning. Morning. Lovely to be chatting to you again. Let's start with the Sumatra quakes. Major changes taking place as a result on the ocean floor, that is. Yes, potentially. There's a paper in Nature this week. It's by uh, Professor Delacluse from Paris. And they've been looking at the patterns of tremors that have occurred because if you look at the news stories that have gone on over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a succession of extremely large quakes, including the one that caused the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. There was another very large earthquake in April of this year. And their theory or, or their proposal, their modelling, how these movements could be explained and what may be happening and why they're e- escalating, they suggest that actually the plate there, which is both the Australian plate and the Indonesian plate, they're suggesting that this tectonic plate mass could be actually splitting. So instead of having uh, just a plate boundary, we're going to get some new plates formed. Um, But it's not going to happen soon, though. Probably over the course of a few million years yet. So don't hold your breath, but we could see some new tectonic plates. So human geologists of the future Mm. may have to slightly change their tectonic map of the Earth's surface. Okay, and all the, 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 the quake, of course, happened in April earlier this year. Thank you very much, Chris. All right, our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567, We are taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. Chris, I've got a, a, an SMS here. I'll, I'll spell the word out because I can't pronounce it. John in Germiston called in about a P-O-M-P... H-O-L-Y-X P-O-M-P-H-O-L-Y-X on his ankle um, qu- called last week and uh, uh, wanted to know what's the question? I just wanted to know what this is. Can the naked scientist please explain? Yeah, th- this was the question about pomphilix mm. and uh, pomphilix is an eczematous condition and I said I'm not a dermatologist, so what I'd like to do is go and find one and, and ask, because John's specific query was how can you treat this rather than just slap steroids onto it. So what I've done for him is I went to the professor of dermatology at the University of Manchester. His mm-hmm. name is Chris Griffiths, and I asked him to answer the question, and I've got it here. Well, pomphilex is a form of eczema that occurs uh, predominantly on the palms and the soles, there does seem to be some link to um, stress exacerbation and uh, treatment can be difficult. Uh, it depends you know, if one gets the underlying cause. Steroids are one of the better treatments, I have to say, and that's true for a lot of inflammatory skin diseases. Other treatments which have been used successfully are local ultraviolet light treatment, either plain ultraviolet B or something called PUVA, which is Sorolin Ultraviolet A. So Sorolin is a 
is a photosensitizer which is you can put into an aqueous solution and the, and the uh, patient can put their hands in there, soak their hands in there for a, for a while and then have UVA radiation and that does help quite markedly. And then there's other treatments such as cyclosporin which of course is a systemic immunosuppressant. So I suppose the bottom line is that we don't know a lot about it. it it's a definitely a recognized clinical entity and it's felt to fall, fall into the atopic dermatitis or atopic eczema spectrum. But there are some people, though, who develop this as a consequence of contact allergy. So it's in some extent, it's maybe not a specific disease entity, but more a clinical sign of these of, um, eczema, eczema or eczematous reaction on the palms where you don't get the sort of scaling and redness that you'd see with ordinary eczema because of the thickness of the epidermis and you get these little um, blisters forming um, in, the, in the skin. So mm. an eczematous reaction on the hands and feet, classically often on the soles, and as Chris Griffith says, steroids is usually the mainstay, but there's, there are some other treatments that can be used for more dramatic and more troubling examples of this. Thank you very much for all this trouble, uh, uh, Chris. And John, there's your answer. Thanks for the question last week. So our lines are open for you. What do you want to know? 021-446-0567, 311702 your SMS line if you are in Gauteng, and 31567 in Cape Town. Let's go to Jackie in Florida, Joburg. Hi. Hi, Reedy. Good morning, Chris. How come when you suntan you get blisters? Hello, Jackie. Um, well, hopefully you don't suntan and get blisters too often because if you're getting blisters, this is actually a burn. And when you are out in the sun, ultraviolet radiation, which Chris Griffith was just referring to, is damaging to skin. And the damage, if it's mild, triggers the skin to increase the amount of melanin, the dark pigment that is in the skin. If the damage is more severe, then it actually physically kills or destroys skin tissue and causes a local spot of inflammation, a hot spot, if you excuse the pun. And that hot spot releases all kinds of inflammatory chemicals and this leads to the immune system moving in and blood vessels open up, water from the blood vessels filters out, cells filter out, and you get a collection of fluid, which is the extracellular or tissue fluid forming, and it coalesces into a little bleb under the skin, and that is the blister. So when you have blistered, you have done quite serious damage to the skin, and that probably should serve as a lesson. You have to be a bit more careful in future, so put on some sun cream and stay out of the strongest sun. Okay, Jackie, do take care of yourself, especially at this time of the year. We have an SMS here from William. William asks, if water is tasteless, why does boiled water taste different from uh, unboiled water? Uh, yes, what an interesting question. I'd never really thought about mm. it. Hello, William. The situation here is that although water, when it comes out of the tap, we regard it as pure water, it's anything but, because there is enormous amounts of dissolved ions and salts in the water. There are also dissolved gases like oxygen and a bit of carbon dioxide. When you boil water, what you do is often remove a lot of those dissolved gases because hot water can't carry as high a concentration of dissolved gas as cold water. So when the, when the water is boiled, you will drive off some of the dissolved gases. And some of those ions and salts include things like temporary hardness, calcium bicarbonate, CaHCO3 twice. And when you heat up the water, these uh, 
I suppose you could say these salts or these compounds are unstable and they decompose under the high temperature and calcium bicarbonate, CaHCO3 twice, becomes calcium carbonate, chalk, all over the elements of your kettle or in your geyser. And as a result, you are removing some salts from the water and therefore you're changing its composition. So although the water hasn't changed terribly much by being boiled, the things that are dissolved in it will have changed, and this can subtly affect the chemistry of the water, and that could contribute to a flavour difference. Also, when you boil it, it's possible that other things that are already loitering in the kettle could move into the water, and mm. that could change the flavour too. I remember I was on a camping trip once, and we, we made some tea with someone's camping kettle, and it was one of those kettles that doesn't have a lid. You just fill it up through the spout. And what we hadn't realised is that there was some really quite nasty fungus growing in this thing because when we made the tea, it really didn't taste too good. We had a look in the kettle and there was a big wadge of sort of, it was a half a mushroom forest growing in there and that's why the tea tasted funny. So that's another mm. explanation. Okay, let's go to um, Roland in Rustenburg. Hi. Good morning. Yes. Good morning, Chris. Chris, I, I recently got into discussion with some engineers and... They're talking about getting how everything is specialized nowadays. And the one mentioned that today, in today's age, there's nobody able to make a simple pencil from scratch. Pencil? You know, the person, okay. Yes. The person wouldn't know how to mine the graphite, then bind it, make it into a, into a, into the, uh, you know, the, the pencil, and then the, the, the person wouldn't know how to make, uh, let's say, the brass to hold a little rubber or... Okay. A so single person wouldn't know all these things. Is that correct? Well, I guess what you're asking is, is there one person that is so skilled that they could do all those different jobs in today's world? And the answer is probably very few. I agree with you. In the old days, we had real uh, polymaths, or, or at least the engineering equivalent, people who really could turn their hand to anything. These days, the world has become extremely specialised. The pieces of equipment mm -hmm. that we all use in our in our day-to-day -day lives and we all regard as essential, a mobile phone, for example, there is no way one single individual could have all of the skill set necessary to build that piece of apparatus. So you're probably right wow. that we've become so specialised uh, that that actually there there is no way that one person working alone could do all the things that we just regard as absolutely essential to our daily lives now. And that change has happened over a dramatically short time scale, hasn't it? I mean, if wow. you think, um, just in, in my lifetime, we've seen computers become um, mainstream in homes. We've seen the internet come along. Um, you know, in my grandparents' lifetime, we've seen everyone going from driving around in horses and carts to everyone owning a car, uh, certainly in Western countries. And, and so it's a very interesting transition that we've seen, um, and the pace of change has become incredibly fast, and with it comes high-end engineering that is not the preserve of individuals anymore. You're absolutely right. That's fascinating. Perhaps we should discuss that in greater uh, details with the trend uh, setters and uh, the people who often come on the show to make projections about how our world will look like in future. Thank you, Roland, for that interesting question. Christine, James, Jenny, I see you coming back in a moment. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Riddy Clappy. Let's go to Jenny in Observatory High. I'm uh, making bottled goods, and uh, once the goods are in the bottle, I fill it up with the sugar syrup. The sugar syrup, there's always some left over, and I wanted to know, A, why it doesn't freeze, and B, whether I can reuse it. Hello, Jenny. What are you putting into the bottles, out of interest? Um, little mandarin oranges. 
Oh, I bet they're tasty. Mm. <laughs> they're wonderful. Come to Cape <laughs> and I'll give you some. <laughs> oh, I, no, I'll take you up on that. I shall hold you to it. Um, sure. So you're doing this with sucrose, the stuff like granulated sugar. You just Normal make a very sugar, strong yeah. solution of that. Yeah. Yes. Well, the reason it doesn't freeze is the same reason that if you make a really strong solution of salty water, it doesn't freeze. And this is because when water, as a liquid, is made very cold, the water molecules, which are shaped like little boomerangs, have to get into a certain configuration where one molecule is arranged relative to another molecule in order for it to form the lattice that is an ice crystal. And if you have a very strong solution of sugar, that means that there are lots of molecules of sugar in amongst all of the water molecules. And in the same way that if you're making a model out of building blocks or something, and you have some funny shaped ones that you have to incorporate, the whole shape of the model goes wrong. And in simple terms, if you've got these giant sugar molecules sitting there, they get in the way of making this ice lattice and the crystals can't form properly. And so you have to make the temperature much lower before it will begin to freeze. It will still freeze, but it will take a lot lower temperature to do it. Uh, because of the energetics of how these particles get in the way. And it's exactly the same way that antifreeze that you would put in your car engine to stop the radiator freezing up in certainly cold countries, but in wintertime, um, that's exactly the same principle. These molecules stop the ice crystals forming in an organised way to make a big ice crystal, unless you make the temperature correspondingly a lot lower. Thank you very much, Jenny. And Christine in Linwood Ridge. James, I'm coming to you in a moment. Christine, hi. Hi. Mm. I wanted to find out why my dog always yawns. I've been sitting down with her or lying down. The minute I stand up, she yawns. Oh, no, your line is really, really bad, Christine. But I understand you want to ask why does the dog always yawn when she gets up? <laughs> I haven't the foggiest. I'm really sorry. Uh, I mean, it might be a learned behaviour, but I really don't know. Does any does any dog behaviouralists who are listening know about this? Why should dogs want to yawn when they get up? Um, most most people yawn when they want to go to bed. But mm. I don't know the answer. I'm sorry, Jenny. Thomas doesn't yawn when he wants to go to bed. He yawns now. Thomas, do you want to go to bed? I just saw you yawning now. No, well, that's fine. a sympathetic yawn, isn't it? So as soon as someone starts talking about yawning, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. or they see people yawning, you have these sympathetic yawns, and, and that's actually um, a physiological response. We think that yawning is really infectious because it's a way of keeping you alert. The funniest, the funniest thing I saw, Chris, was someone yawning was during the Comrades Marathon, which is 89.6 kilometres, and you're basically running the whole day if you're not one of the uh, 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 runners who compete and I saw a guy who just pulled over to the side of the road and he was sitting on the pavement and just yawning but he did finish the race he did start running at some <laughs> point but he was sitting does there he, did he have a little snooze at the side of the race then, I've or? known runners who do that they just sleep for 10 minutes and then get back because it's a whole day affair that okay so anyone knows why a dog why dogs yawn when they get up please let us know we'd love to uh, get that answer let's go to James in Fishhook High Oh, good morning. Hi. Um, it's been shown that um, a family whose uh, who generations ago suffered in a famine carry an impaired gene, uh, uh, which can be seen by scientists today. C could you, Chris, could you expand on the, on the implications of that for all our pollution at the moment and things like that? Hello, James. I think you're referring to a study... Uh, there's been a number of studies, but there was a paper that was published in 2008 by a guy in the Netherlands, and I think his name's Baz Hymans, and he was looking at the Dutch hunger famine. Um, during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in World War II, certain parts of the country were starved, and 
amongst the people who were being starved because they couldn't get the food in and out were women who were pregnant at the time. Now, a number of those women survived, and their babies survived, and those babies are now 60 years old. And doctors have followed their health, and they've shown that these individuals who were starved when their mothers were starving at the end of the war have a higher risk of heart disease and diabetes and stroke and high blood pressure and obesity compared with their brothers and sisters who were born at a time when they weren't being starved. And this has led them to conclude, because those groups are all individually very closely related to each other, the only difference being that one of them was developing with a very, very uh, poor supply of calories compared with the others, is there something that's going on epigenetically or is, is in other words is there something changing which can be inherited which is related to how genes are turned on or off and what Baz Hyman's points out in his paper they were looking at a gene called IGF1 insulin like growth factor 1 and he found that uh, in these individuals that were being uh, starved when they were developing in the womb a certain gene had a different pattern of chemicals uh, stuck to it which changes its activity compared with the individual's brothers and sisters and this epigenetic modification is a reflection on that uh, fairly harsh environment those individuals were growing up in and it looks like that trait could be heritable and so this is this is the whole science of epigenetics which is an emerging science now we're realizing that it's not just what's written into the genes that's important it's how those genes are turned on and off and these chemical markers that can be stuck onto the side of the DNA to control the activity of genes are at the root of this. And so this is really a very important mm. field which we're beginning to understand more of now. And it probably does have enormous implications for the world we live in. In other words, you make the point, the pollution we're exposed to, well, that too could have impacts on us epigenetically. It could change the way genes are turned on or off, and that could in turn have implications for our health. So it's a very important question. Thank you, James. Let's go to Herman in Houghton. You're a doctor, and you've got an answer for the dog yawning question. <laughs> yes, um, good morning. Mm. Um, I'm a neurosurgeon. Um, I don't know about dogs, but I believe it would be the same reason as in humans. You, you know that um, the, the speed at which your brain waves run are, are grouped into classes alpha, beta, theta, and delta. And when you, when you are in an alpha mind state, your brain waves are going at a slower rate than when you're in a beta mind state. Now, yawning occurs when a person passes from one state into the other. That is why when you, when you, before you go to sleep, you're slowing down from beta into alpha and then into delta. And at those transitions, you yawn. When you when you wake up, you yawn because you're going from delta into alpha, or from alpha into beta. And why that happens, I don't know. But apparently, the the yawning is a marker of changing from one mind state, or one one of those bands into another. Which is also why when people get bored, for instance, they they go from beta down into alpha, which is the meditation or hypnosis state, and uh, and then they yawn. Okay, naked scientist. Um, the only thing I'd say, Herman, is interesting theory, but uh, we wake up every day, we go to sleep every day, at least when we're alive, and uh, when we're not listening to 702, because that gets everyone going. <laughs> but of course, the thing is, we're doing this regularly, but we don't all yawn. I certainly didn't yawn before I went to bed and went to sleep last night. I haven't yawned yet today until uh, I had the intense sensation to yawn when Reedy started talking about it. And I think that actually whilst, whilst your point may be relevant to what's going on in the brain, that 
change yes. may actually be more a reflection of another process and there was a paper published from uh, a guy called Gordon Gallup in New York at the State University of New York this was in 2006-7 and they found that brain cooling is a way of blocking yawning and they showed students lots of videos of people yawning and, and totted up how many times the students yawned in sympathy and then they asked them to hold a cold compress on the front of their head and watch the same videos again and the sympathetic yawning rate went from about a hundred percent to zero. Then they asked them to just breathe through their mouth rather than through their noses and this has the reverse effect. It uh, does not cool the head as much and the yawning rate went to high levels again compared with breathing through the nose. So his theory is that actually you yawn when your brain temperature escalates because certain drugs which escalate brain blood flow and raise temperature will increase yawning. Uh, fatigue which raises brain blood flow and, and increases brain temperature causes yawning and th their argument is therefore it's a way of increasing your alertness and it's infectious because if one person's nodding off it's likely another person could be nodding off so if you make everyone yawn cool the brain increase alertness everyone wakes up less likely to be preyed upon by a wild animal. Mm. All right, Herman, thank you very well, much. Thank you very much. Thank I didn't you. know that. Thank you. <laughs> very Bye -bye. interesting. Thanks indeed. Chris, we've loved chatting to you. And I must just tell you, everywhere I go, whether it's a shopping mall or a party, uh, people talk about the show, but they're talking about the Naked Scientist. So we really appreciate you giving us 30 minutes in your busy schedule, Chris. Well, thanks for having me, everybody. It's lovely to talk to you too. And thanks for the great questions. We get the best questions from around the world from 702, I think. Stunning. I love that. <laughs> of course, we will podcast this conversation. Bye, Chris. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. And uh, yes, you can go to the website and download the Naked Scientist uh, podcast. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.